you become your environment, right? Like the people you spend your time with is going to change you in either good ways or bad ways. So you have to choose your environment very wisely. And I think if you can figure that out early days in college, that'll definitely help you achieve those goals that you set for yourself freshman year. Hi, everyone. Hey, guys. Welcome to the first episode of The Secret Syllabus. The Secret Syllabus is a production of The Female Quotient and iHeartRadio and co-produced by The Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. Hey everyone, I'm Hannah Ashton. And I'm Katie Tracy. And we're both YouTubers. And on our channels, we talk a lot about our experiences as college students. I go to Belmont University, where I'm majoring in entrepreneurship. And I go to Cornell University, where I'm majoring in information science. So a lot of us listening right now are college students. I'm sure in some way COVID has derailed your plans, has forced you to change your future, and is probably making you have an existential life crisis every single day. We as college students feel that. So Hannah and I decided to make a podcast so we could tackle everything that our college curriculum did not cover for us, especially during this time of uncertainty. There's so much to talk about from fostering allyship to cultivating a positive body image to navigating the lost semesters of COVID. Yes, and we know many of you have had to rework your plans, and Katie and I have also had to do that. I know for me, I spent two of my college years in Nashville, and I was planning on going on this program this semester where I could study in New York and have an internship. And three weeks before I was supposed to move, I found out that whole program got canceled. And so right after learning that my dream of living in New York and walking the streets to a super cool and trendy internship was canceled, I, to be honest, cried on FaceTime to my roommate. And I also felt confused about what my whole semester now would look like. I totally felt the same. Being an international student from the Philippines, I really looked at these four years as an escape, a way to grow and experience a whole new different culture in America. And now I'm back home in the Philippines, had to evacuate when the whole COVID situation struck. But I can only imagine what the seniors are feeling. You know, graduation is supposed to be this exciting time to celebrate with all your friends. And quite frankly, there are many people who are just stuck in their rooms right now having a very lonely college experience. And some people on campus, I'm sure, are just worried and waiting for their school to evacuate them once again. So there's just a lot of anxiety going on right now. And we believe that we can get through this together. Exactly. So that's where our first guest comes in. She is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a FIFA Women's World Cup champion, and a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame. And all while staying true to herself, she has managed to successfully turn disappointment into fuel, owning the power of resilience in the face of uncertainty and change. She's amazing, and we're talking about Abby Wambach. I am so ready for this podcast episode. What about you, Hannah? Yes, she is an amazing first guest, and we're so excited for you guys to take a listen. Welcome, Abby. We are thrilled to have you on our show. We have lots to talk about today, but first, we'd love for you to start us off by introducing yourself and what you've been up to. My name's Abby Wambach. I played for many years on the U.S. Women's National Team, and I've been retired for about five years now. And basically, I am doing the parenting thing. The last five years, I've had to transition from a playing career into a totally different career off the field, 
yes, I do want to stay involved and am still involved in the game. However, my career while I played didn't offer me the kind of security that you would imagine a professional athlete earning. In fact, I found myself in early days of my retirement on an SB stage, and I found myself next to Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning. All three of us were getting this icon award, you know, and I felt super grateful. I felt like, wow, here we are, we women, we finally made it. And I was rudely awakened to, as we three walked off that stage, how different our retirements, in fact, would be. Kobe and Peyton, their biggest concerns were where they were going to invest their hundreds of millions of dollars that they collectively earned. And my concern was how I was going to be able to pay my mortgage. That's a real life story. And that isn't just my story. I realized that night that that's the story of so many women. So I've been in search of what I want to do next. And it's been fun. It's been terrifying. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an investor. I'm a professional sports team co-owner and a speaker and author. And parenting. Parenting is kind of the biggest thing these days. We're so excited to get into your work with gender equality and allyship. But since Katie and I are college students, we love to start with your journey there. In college at the University of Florida, you were doing a lot, to say the least. You were the SEC Freshman of the Year and SEC Player of the Year, among many other titles. What pressures did you feel as a student athlete? Gosh, I mean, the list is basically endless. When I chose to go to college at the University of Florida, I went there because I knew on some level that I was going there to prepare myself for professional sport. And when you add the stress and the time constraint of school, I can't even sugarcoat it, of like having to go to class and having to do the work and having homework and having to study and having to take tests. That adds an element of, for me, it was just time, right? So, you know, when you go to college, you envision one thing, but as a college athlete, it's totally different, right? You are basically busy from the time that you wake up to the time that you go to sleep. So much of my mindset happened to be around facilitating and giving myself every opportunity to become this professional athlete. And so if for all intents and purposes, I think I made the right choice, (laughs) being that I was able to make my way as a pro athlete. But I think that that's a very rare story. So I believe that you have to give yourself an expectation of work. You got to work. You got to figure out what you want to do long term because everybody has to navigate right these new waters of college and it's not easy. Finding really good friends that are also doing the similar things that you're invested in, whether it's a teammate or a classmate or a study mate or a roommate, whoever you spend your time with. I mean, that's one of the things that I've learned the most in my post-college career is you become your environment, right? Like the people you spend your time with is going to change you in either good ways or bad ways. So you have to choose your environment very wisely. And I think if you can figure that out early days in college, that'll definitely help you achieve those goals that you set for yourself freshman year. And I'm curious, was the pay gap among male and female professional athletes ever discussed by your college teammates while you were still in school? No. I mean, interestingly enough, I first started at the University of Florida in 1998. And so that prolific 1999 Women's World Cup championship team happened while I was in college, right? So what that also means is that there really wasn't professional women's soccer to be played other than playing on the women's national team. And for me at 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, that didn't feel like even close to a possibility. 
I didn't even have a place to play. There wasn't even the what was called the WSA. There wasn't even the first iteration of women's professional soccer. So for me, there was definitely not even the pay gap talk because there was nothing to talk about. We have come quite a far way in a few years, right? This is 20 years ago. And I have to really talk mostly about Title IX. And if you don't know what Title IX is, it was a law that was enacted in 1972 that required publicly funded institutions to give both men and women, both boys and girls, the same funding, the same opportunity. The reason why this actually all started is because women wanted to become doctors and lawyers. And back in the 70s, they weren't really allowed that opportunity. There were so few women that were allowed into the programming of doctors and becoming lawyers that they wanted something policy-wise to be able to shape our world so that women could become doctors and lawyers. Well, because of this law, one of the most beautiful side effects of it is that college sports also had to become compliant in giving men and women the same amount of scholarships. So I am like literally a direct beneficiary of this beautiful law that went into into effect in the 70s. And so I think that it's really indicative of how far we've come in a short period of time and also indicative of how far we do need to continue to go. And I think that we just have to remember and go back to the beginning of how it started. That's really cool. I had heard about Title IX, but not in the sports context. I know also that today you are a huge advocate for equality. How can we as women in college start developing these habits to own our worth and, like you once said, demand what we deserve? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I have learned so much, not just in my retirement, but throughout my career and now as a parent, we women have I mean, quite frankly, all human beings have been conditioned to this idea of what it means to be a woman. And for me, one of the most important things that I've done and I've been able to do throughout my career, it's this idea that we are trying to, as women, we have to see what the world is telling us who to be and try to break those social norms, those social constructs that have been created to keep us in place. And I'm so grateful because I have stood on the shoulders of giants, Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, women who came before me that gave me an opportunity and also gave me a path. There are so many people that have come before us that have laid path for us, whether it's bricks or pebbles. And when you are a marginalized group, right, we have to redefine for ourselves what it means to be a woman rather than letting the world tell us who to be. For me, what really did settle in early on as a national team player was this unifying group of women, these unifying group of badass women who weren't going to let the world tell us who to be. Rather, we were going to flip that script, right? And we were going to show with the way that we played, with the way that we talked, with the way that we swaggered, we were going to show that we weren't going to conform to what the world was telling us and how the world tells us. So for me, I just think that finding yourself in a group or in an environment of people who are like-minded thinkers, who are futuristic and progressive thinkers about where we are now as a society to where we ought to be, those are the kind of environments that I want to find myself in. 
In your book, Wolfpack, you discuss the importance of encouraging and empowering women and calling out each other's wins. What does this look like practically in our lives? Uh, yeah, so championing each other is so important. And I firmly am a, a huge believer in celebrating wins, no matter how big or small. We women are pitted against each other and have been from the beginning of time. And let's break this down into a corporation. So let's just say Apple. Apple's a massive corporation. And the way that their corporation is run is they have a board and then they have executives and they have probably many of those executives on their board. Now, this board table is full of people that help Apple understand their business and help Apple make decisions for future business and where they want this company to go. But what is always the case is that the maximum is basically two women for every one of those tables. In my opinion, I think that corporations and corporate culture really does dictate society, culture that we see, the products that we use, the campaigns that we are brainwashed by. All of those things play a role. And what we have to remember is that those decisions are made by human beings, right? What these big corporations do is they have these tables. And if those tables aren't diverse enough or inclusive enough, then every single decision that they make at that table is going to have bias. And for me, I believe that we have to, as women, understand and remember that there are, let's say, hypothetically, 10 seats at that table. We need to require that we are at least at five of them. We need to require it from our corporations. We need to require it from our institutions, from our churches, from our colleges. And I understand what it's like to be a woman and to be let into that room and be offered a seat at that table. It's happened to me. I also understand the dynamic between women who believe that there are only two seats at that table because historically that's all that's been given. So this dynamic between women that are pitted against each other and fighting each other for that seat, that is the way that power stays in power. It is the fear-mongering that they make us believe that we are only ever going to get these two seats. And I am here to tell you that I've been a part of really beautiful situations where it's not just fully women-led, but it is diverse. It is inclusive. The kind of broad thinking and the products and the campaigns that can come out of those rooms are what I believe our future will hold. But we have to stop fighting each other, we women or we marginalized people. That is the way power stays in power, is to keep all those that they are in power of afraid of each other. Right. I think the image you just painted is beautiful. And I remember the time I also swapped from the scarcity mindset to an abundant and infinite mindset, and it was life-changing. I think one big fear a lot of us have, though, is taking risks, perhaps because of failure, rejection, or disappointment. What advice do you have for those of us who may feel this way because it means veering off from a safer and more traditional path? Yeah, this is a big one for women. The perfection phenomena that women feel we have to embody, right? And it's not just in work, right? It's in every element. The thing that really did amplify my life is making mistakes and then turning them on its head. As an athlete, I was able to kind of massage the 
idea, the mindset of making failure my fuel so early on in my life that I never really looked at mistakes as the end. I mean, everything good in my life has come from a specific moment that I can point right back to and go, gosh, remember how far I've come? Remember what I learned from that? Remember what that felt like? That was horrible. That was like the worst thing I feel like I've ever done or experienced. But look at what I was able to do because success is not about how many mountaintops you climb. It's about how far you come from the moments of learning, from the times where you feel like you were a failure. I know some of the most successful people that have ever lived. And one of the most common denominators between all of these people is that they don't think twice about making mistakes. They don't then worry or not take that next risk. They learn from it, but they're not going to not live or not act or not participate in that next thing because that's when you miss it all. And I'm just telling every woman out there that we don't have to be perfect. And when we see another woman fall down, it is our job, it is our responsibility to reach over and say, you know what, don't worry about it, dust yourself off and let's go. As an entrepreneur, I love the quote, make failure your fuel, because I see that in in business, because if something fails, you know not to do that again, and you know how to change it and listen to your customer and fuel forward. So yeah, it's like, it's evidence. For me, it's not it's not something to, to shy away from. It's something to turn towards and actually use as more information to inform you about what to do next or your next decision. Were there any specific lessons you learned about failure from soccer that you've taken onto your new life as an author, speaker, and now mother? Yeah. You know, I think that being an athlete, like I said, it just gives you this constant stream of failures. As an athlete, it is never my job to be perfect the whole time. In terms of minutes that I played versus goals that I've scored, I would say it's like well below 1%. So when you look at it from like a statistical perspective, and then you you think to yourself, well, what the heck was I doing the other 99% of the time? It wasn't all failure, but a lot of it was. It was trial. It was error. There are ways for you to statistically figure out what is necessarily a failure to you. What are those points where you did find success? Um, And then understand that there's going to be a whole range of things that you're going to consider a failure. And I'm telling every person right now that's listening to this, that the things that I look back on my life and I am most proud of, they're not actually the times when I was raising the flag or when I was getting a gold medal wrapped around my neck. They're actually the times when I realized that those failures were worth it. I think sports is a really great metaphor is like you are constantly giving yourself this opportunity to develop the muscle of dealing with failure and dealing with all of the emotions that are wrapped up in it. And so I think that for women, especially, we have to to work on it individually. And also one of the things that our national team was so good about is to talk about them. I was actually doing this interview with Mia Hamm a couple of years ago. And I was, I was telling the host, I said, well, you know, I'm, I, I was never the fastest player. And she just stopped me and she said, listen, and by the way, Mia stopped me, not, not the host. She's like, Abby, like, I appreciate your honesty there. She's like, but here's the thing, like you saw your lack of speed as a weakness or a part of your game that was a failure. She said, but if you didn't have 
that kind of trait, then I wouldn't have been able to be successful in my speed. So the way that that looks in opposition to each other is that we made one really beautiful unit, a forward unit that scored goals. But if you were also fast, then you wouldn't probably have been strong. And I needed to have a strong tall player who could head be the ball, who could hold off defenders, and who could put herself in the box to score goals when I would send crosses in. And I think that that's really important, right? Like we all can't be good at everything. And honoring our weaknesses, just as we honor our strengths, sometimes, and I think every time in a team environment can be good. Through all your success, how do you remain you? It's so easy to say, don't attach yourself to the titles, awards, labels, but in practice, it's hard. So how do you, being so accomplished, reconcile these with your identity? That's a really good question. Midway through my professional career, one of my favorite coaches of all time, Pia Sundaga, she was hired as our national team coach. Now, up until this point, I had only been coached by women who, for all intents and purposes, did well, but were trying to be the male version, I think, of themselves. And so here walked in Pia Sundahaga from Sweden. She's a foreigner, a woman who is herself in literally every environment you can imagine. Doesn't matter how high class or professional, she is who she is. And our first meeting, she pulled out her guitar and started playing to us a Bob Dylan song, These Times Are Changing. Now, at first, all of us national team players are like looking around and looking at each other like, what is wrong with this lady? She doesn't understand what the US does. Like we're professional and we expect to be put in these environments and and kick ass and yada, yada, yada. Well, as the song kind of evolved, all of us started to lean in because she knew, right? She knew that we were all looking at her with crazy eyes, yet she still kept playing. The thing that is so important to me is seeing another woman step into her own self, into her own power was one of the most powerful things and transformative things for me to see. And I think until I accepted who I was fully, I was never going to be the leader that I knew that I could be. And that is the thing I think that is missing so much right now in our world is women stepping into their full humanity as a woman with all of their femininity and their masculinity. We as women have to believe in ourselves more than anybody else. I know some of the most successful women in the world, and that for sure is one of the most important elements to be able to break through some of these male-dominated spaces. But I think that being and owning truly who you are, no matter what. Now, if somebody's saying something racist or sexist or whatever in a meeting, how are you standing up for the voiceless? What are you doing to diffuse that situation? I think we've learned so much over the last couple months. I know I have in terms of the race conversation. And I think that women especially have a unique ability to be able to step into themselves right now with the pandemic. We have to believe in ourselves. Truly, I'm lucky because I was able to learn those lessons many years ago. And it has taken me a long time because to know to be yourself is one thing. To actually be yourself is another. Now, for our final question, when you retired from soccer, you had a really powerful farewell message. You said, forget me. 
When I first heard this, it caught me by surprise because most people want to be remembered, but you wanted the opposite. I want our listeners to hear this firsthand from you. So can you please share with us what legacy you wish to leave behind? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when you think about it from your ego, my goal was always about leaving the game better than I found it. That was my dream. And I knew that that was going to be a tall order because as my career progressed, Mia was on my team at the beginning of my career and we had thousands and thousands of fans. And then when Mia left, so did many of our fans. But we were able to rebuild our women's national team and the popularity through hard work and championships and yada, yada. For me, that campaign, I had to break free from some of the ego uh, as a pro athlete. And by the way, I have a healthy ego on my shoulders. I wanted to win championships and I wanted to be the best player that I possibly could be. But that's such an arbitrary, you know, awards and such, like being player of the year, like who's choosing that? By what methods and by what standards? Like there are so many people that could be deserving of player of the year awards. And for me, I felt like, and I feel like, you know, when people stop talking about me, then it feels like there is progress and there is movement, right? When people stopped, and by the way, nobody really stopped talking about Mia Hamm, but when the flash, the light starts to shine on somebody else, then you know that that's progress because it's more fans, more people getting invested and involved. It's not about how many people were coming to the games when I was playing or how many championships we were able to win. It was generationally how I was able to build upon a culture that was there before I stepped foot into the women's national team organization. As you get older in your career, you will have to fight your ego a little bit to want to stay A, relevant, or B, on top. And with that fight comes a truer, more beautiful version, which is an openness. Okay, what are some of these younger people wanting? What are they saying? And then helping them take over in a way that will solidify your legacy, solidify your role, not just as a person going through and checking the box, but like actually making the space or the company or the environment that you help build. How are, are you helping that younger generation make it even better? One of the things that I get so frustrated about now is people saying, Oh, you know, the millennials or the Gen Zers, like the next generation, they want more. They expect more than we ever did. But the reality is, here we are, here I am doing everything that I possibly can to make the world, the job, the space a little bit better for the person who comes next. Right. So when Alex Morgan showed up on the scene and she started expecting more than I did when I was her age, it is the old person's ego that's like, jealous that she's got it so easy. So for me, I look at Alex and I'm like, hell yes, you better expect more because I want that next person who comes behind you to say, I want more. We deserve more because that is how we leave the game or the thing better than we found it. Amazing advice. I'm fired up. Thank you so much, Abby, for being on The Secret Syllabus. We know your legacy will live on with our listeners. And it was, of course, such an honor to interview you. Everyone can go be a wolf pup and follow Abby on Instagram at Abby Wombach. And of course, go purchase Wolfpack to read for yourself. Thank you so much. Thanks, you guys, for having me. Have a great one. 
Okay, Katie, I don't know about you, but I feel like I got a lot out of that interview. It's such an important reminder that now more than ever, we need to be gentle on ourselves because rejection is bound to happen, whether it's from a partner, a friend, a job, or an internship, and we can't change that. But as we learned from Abby, we can change what we do with that rejection. We can let it hold us back, or we can use it to propel us forward. And I think Abby is such a great example of the power that rejection can hold and why it can be and should be seen as an opportunity, not a threat. And as women especially, I think we need to be empowering and reminding each other that we are more than capable of getting through anything if we believe that we can all succeed together, and we can. Absolutely. I love it. Well, thanks guys for listening to our first episode and a huge thanks to Abby Wombach for taking the time to come on the show and share her powerful insights. And we are your hosts, Katie here. You can find me at AlohaKatieX on Instagram. And I'm Hannah. You can find me at Miss Hannah Ashton on Instagram. The Secret Syllabus is a production of the Female Quotient and iHeartRadio and co-produced by the Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. The FQ is committed to advancing equality and elevating women from college campuses to the corner office. You can find out more at www.thefemalequotient.com. See you after class. Bye.